0: Tuesday nights at um, Joann's and on Tuesday morning at Ginny's house. Food pantry is Wednesday here at 6 o'clock. The uh, prayer meeting on Wednesdays will be postponed for Thanksgiving as well as the book club uh, for this week on Thursday night will be postponed uh, for Thanksgiving. Uh, youth group is on Saturdays. Um, I'm not exactly sure what the dates are for this month, but you can ask Candace or Laurie. We do have the potluck coming up on December 10th. I know you guys don't want to miss that, so put that in your calendar. Um, we, you can see, I love how the wall is filled up with the why do you do what you do uh, pictures. It looks kind of neat over there. If you'd like to join in with that, Nadine has her camera, and she has a marker and a, um, uh, a um, paper where you can write out why do you do what you do. And we'll take your picture, and we'll throw that up there as well. You can see her after the service. Um, the other thing is, um, the, uh, you know, we no longer have the cleaning service for the church. We have volunteers doing it. There's been a couple of ladies who have been faithfully doing it. They could probably use some help. If you guys would sign up um, by the coffee bar to maybe take a section of the church and clean it during the week, that would be very, very helpful. Well, thank you. So if you have Bibles with you, open up to Matthew chapter 5. Last week I spoke about the seven redemptive gifts of the Spirit out of Romans 12. Some of the issues I covered was the significance of the number seven. Do a study on the number of seven in Scripture. It's profoundly significant. How many times the number seven is used in Scripture? I defined each of the seven gifts for you, and then we looked at the redemptive gifts of the Spirit from the perspective of... Um, personality traits. Um, Studies have been done with people who have predominantly, one of these gifts often have uh, particular personality traits. And so we we took a look at that last week. Um, On our church website if you go to thebridgelongisland.com, underneath where it says sermon, um, there is a link and there are two documents that you can download there. One has um, a test, kind of fill in the blank kind of test. You add up the numbers, and you can, from this test, figure out which one of the redemptive gifts you most strongly operate in. And then there's a second document there which gives a description. Most of the stuff I covered last week, but it's in printed form, uh, on each personality trait. So if you're interested in that, some people like doing personality type tests. I love that stuff. Nadine, not so much, but I love that kind of stuff. I can barely pass up a personality trait uh, test without you know wanting to fill it out. I've probably done dozens over the years. But that's on our website. So if that stuff intrigued you last week, um, there's links there uh, for that. Okay, so we are in the midst of changing seasons. This has been a reoccurring theme I've talked about for about a month now. Um, we're, We're moving, I believe, from the sixth redemptive gift, which is ruler, to the seventh redemptive gift, which is mercy. We're moving from a ruler season to a mercy season. And in Arthur Burke's words, it's a profound paradigm shift that the transition that the the church is making right now makes the Protestant Reformation look like child's play. And if you are are a student of church history, that should make you shake in your boots, because that rocked the whole world. To this day we live with some of the ramifications of the Protestant Reformation. And he says that this new change makes that look like child's play. You guys remember some um, weeks back, maybe months ago now, um, we showed a vi- video with this woman, Phyllis Tickle, and she talked about church history. Um, it, was a, it was a fun day. She's, that video is on our website as well, if you go into the video section. Phyllis Tickle. And she calls it the Great Emergence. And in her language, she was communicating a sense that if you look at church history, it's like the church goes through these 500-year cycles and she said, maybe a year ago we watched that video that we're at the beginning of a of a new cycle, and so i kind of I kind of like that different voices from very different sections of the church are feeling and sensing the same thing that there's a there's a massive change happening, and we're at the very beginning, the threshold, the entry point of this changing of seasons from what was a ruler's season, and God did amazing things in the ruler's season it wasn't bad it's like and now, now he's working in a mercy season. So the fact that he's changed seasons doesn't say that the last season was bad. Who loves summertime? We love summertime, right? Some of you guys love going to the beach. Summer is great. It's just not summer now. The seasons have changed. It doesn't mean that... The seasons didn't change because summer was evil. The seasons changed because the seasons changed. God's doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? He's doing a new thing. And... My heart, the way he's kind of wired me, is I want to be sensitive to whatever the new thing is that God's doing. I want to do the new thing. I want to do whatever he's doing. My heart as a, as a, as a believer in Christ, just personally, is, is God, what are you doing, and how can I better do it with you? And certainly that's my heart as a pastor. God, what are you doing? And let's figure out what you're doing, and then let's cooperate with you as best as we can. I think that's a, I think that's a good thing. And I think, unfortunately, it's contrary to how most of the church has operated. Most of us have become experts at the old thing, and we're comfortable in that. We worked really hard to become experts at the last thing, and it's really disconcerting. It's uncomfortable. It's unsettling to start doing a new thing. When I was such an expert at the last thing. Maybe it's like going from junior high to high school. I can remember leaving junior high, and we were the... How did they do it back then? I think they did 7th, 8th, and ninth grade, and then for us, you went to high school in 10th grade. I remember in ninth grade, we ruled the school, right? All the, I was, we were the oldest ones in the school. We were the biggest, the strongest, the oldest. And now we go to high school. And it's a promotion when you go to high school, right? But now you go to high school, and you're the smallest. You're not the biggest anymore. You're the freshman again, so, as it were. And it's uncomfortable, Right Until you find your way. I call, uh, trying to find language to communicate the change. Maybe for some of us that's how it feels like. Maybe we're moving from junior high to high school. Or maybe from high school to college. Maybe it's a better, um, you know, a better way of describing it. i talking to my daughter this week and she was saying how just the change from undergrad to grad school and trying to adjust to those changes. Um, that she'd even discussed it with some of her uh, classmates on how even just to get into this program, they, they only took five students. They, they were the best of the best. Not only were they, were they good at the last season, they were the best of the best in the last season. And so now she's in, in this new arena, and she has to adjust to being a new kid on the block again. And the, the expectations are different. The demands are different. The way, the way everything operates is different. And she's adjusting well, but it is an adjustment. So I wonder for us, I anticipate that as we, as we as a church change, as you as individuals in your relationship with God move from one season to the next season, um, there'll be the need for adjustment to get used to and comfortable in the new thing. And there's going to be a, a huge, gravitational, spiritual pull in us to the old that was comfortable. I think that's natural. I understand that. I expect it. My heart, you've figured this out by now, I'm sure, is I want to go forward. I want to go forward into the new thing. And I want to do that as best as I can. And the pastor in me wants to wants to nurture you in the process, but not enough to let us stay in the old thing. I don't want to comfort you so much that I somehow make it okay to stay in the old thing if I really believe in my heart that God's doing the new thing. I want to encourage us to move forward into the new thing. But you probably all know that already. So anyway, um, if we're moving into a mercy season, I want to take a, a closer look this morning at mercy. And, and the classic verse in Scripture on mercy is obviously found in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes. And I believe that the Beatitudes represent the character of Christian, of the character of kingdom, citizenship. That's one way of looking at the Beatitudes. So I think that's like the classic section, that one verse, Matthew uh, 5-7, on mercy. And the other would probably be the parable of the Good Samaritan, another great biblical example of mercy. And so I want to take a look at both of those today. So if you have... Your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 5. Please follow along um, as I begin reading. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and began teaching them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Verse I'm going to focus on this morning. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, So Lord, I pray you give me grace today to communicate your word to your people in a way that brings change, positive change in our lives, and helps us to be more like you. Amen? Amen. So the Beatitudes, the great Sermon on the Mount. Maybe more sermons have been preached on this text of scripture than any other, you know? Great, great, amazingly powerful stuff. So I believe that kingdom citizens, citizens of the kingdom of God, are characterized by these, by these beatitudes. Kingdom citizens are characterized by being poor in spirit. In other words, they're humble. Kingdom citizens are characterized by being mournful. Another way to say that is that they've been broken. And broken's a good thing. Broken is not a bad thing. Not broken like I've crushed you with my will. Broken like you have a powerful horse who has learned in all of its power to submit to the will of the rider. And I'm not the rider. He's the rider. Right? There's much strength in the power of a horse that submits to the will of a rider. Maurice, you know that, right? You know that personally. But a a horse that has not been broken is really of little, little use to the owner at all. So blessed are the mournful. they are people who've been broken in. They've been broken. Blessed are the meek. They're submissive. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They passionately desire eternity. They ardently crave, eagerly desire, and painfully want to be supernaturally synchronized and aligned with God's divine nature. Let me say that again. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they passionately desire eternity. They ardently, ardently crave, eagerly desire, and painfully want to be supernaturally synchronized and aligned with God's divine nature. That's what it means, to hunger and to thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. I'll explain that a little bit more in a minute. Being pure in heart. The kingdom citizenship characterized by being pure in heart means that their mind, their will, and their emotions are undivided and uncorrupted and without mixture. Blessed are the peacemakers. They're willing to do what needs to be done to bring about safety and security and harmony. And even blessed are the persecuted. These are those who are treated wrong for doing what was right. To these, to us as kingdom citizenship, kid, kingdom citizens, to us belongs the kingdom of heaven, the comfort of God,'ll we'll inherit the earth,'ll we'll find satisfaction and compassion,'ll we'll behold God and sonship or daughtership. I only want to focus primarily on one of the Beatitudes this morning. And that's the fifth Beatitude. In this mercy season, I thought it would be helpful to have a a fuller understanding of what mercy is about. The fifth is, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. What is mercy? According to Strong's Concordance, it means to help the afflicted, but to bring help to the wretched. One commentary I, meant, I read said that the merciful care and reach out to help those that are in need without demanding that they deserve such help. The merciful care and reach out to help those that are in need without demanding that they deserve such care. I think Peterson in his, in his uh, work, The Message, gets it best. He says, blessed... Uh, You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, or full of care, you find yourself cared for. At the moment of being full of care, you find yourself being cared for. I've heard it said that grace is getting what you don't deserve. Salvation. And that mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Which is judgment. Mercy... (laughs) is not getting what we do deserve. Mercy is is the activity of compassion's motivation. Mercy is the activity of compassion's motivation. Mercy is being actively compassionate. At Burning Man, Nadine and I went this past year. We exhibited great mercy to people. We offered to them a little bit of grace. There was some salvation that took place. But we offered to them truckloads of mercy. We were non-judgmental. What's the opposite of mercy? It's to be judgmental, right? Mercy triumphs over judgment. So we were actively compassionate at Burning Man. A little bit of grace, truckloads of mercy. We don't judge them. No matter how wacky they look or how strange they operate, We give them truckloads of mercy. I remember years ago, we were still back in Washington, uh, a friend of ours, Dawn, who's now pastoring the church out there, along with her husband. Um, She went up and down the streets and asked uh, asked non-Christians what they thought about Christians. She had a clipboard and a piece of paper, and she's doing a survey. And she's going to the bars and the different clubs that were there and the shops and just... Interrupted people on the street and say, hey, would you take a survey? Just one question. And, and Dawn is kind of short and she's not threatening at all, not a big, heavy, bald guy like me. And so she kind of kind of glows. You know. So everybody was happy to interact with her. And they were like, okay, what's the question? She says, well, just tell me. When I say the word Christian, what's the first thing that comes to mind? And she interviewed dozens of people that night. And the first thing that they said, the number one answer, was that they were judgmental. That was a, that's a number one impression of us. They don't see us as being merciful. And then, if you guys remember, you know, maybe it was about a year ago or so, we did the book on Christian. We did a book club on it, I preached on it. And that book confirmed Dawn's non-scientific, impromptu survey of the people in the neighborhood there. That they see us as judgmental. It will not be. I don't think it should be that way. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. Think about your own life for a second. Is there anybody in the room? You don't have to raise your hand. But is there anybody in the room that you would say to me, you know what, I've got all the mercy I can handle. I have no more room in my life for mercy. Not me. So at Burning Man, Aideen and I had compassion on the burners, and we expressed mercy by not judging them. Instead, we loved them, no matter what their religious or spiritual background was. And repeatedly, we heard heard from them, those who would discover that we were Christians. They would say to us, I've never met a Christian like you before. And that both gave us joy and sadness when we thought about that. Because... I don't know. When I'm judgmental, I don't think anybody finds that attractive. When I'm merciful, mercy is very attractive, isn't it? Everybody wants to experience mercy. Mercy is powerful. Anybody ever hear of John Piper? Some of John Piper's materials on mercy. He, uh, he explains mercy by using the parable of the Good Samaritan. Let me just read that parable to you from, um, from Luke 10. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. An expert of the law, okay? <laughs> the law, the expert of the law. Stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And the teacher answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus gave him this parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hand of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? The expert in the law said, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus' answer was, go and do likewise. So there are four dimensions to mercy in this story. In verse 33, The first thing that happens is that they see the distress. A Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and he saw him. The first dynamic, the first element, the first dimension of mercy is that you see what's going on. Mercy has eyes to see those who are in distress. Second is um, it responds internally. Mercy responds internally internally with a heart of compassion or pity to those who are in need. And when he saw him, verse 33 says, he took pity on him or he had compassion on him. The third dimension of mercy is that it responds externally with a practical effort to relieve the distress. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own ducky, took him to an inn and took care of him. And finally, the fourth dimension of mercy is that it, it happens even when the person in distress is by religion or race an enemy. Because Samaritans were enemies of the Jews. You understand that, right? Most of you are aware of that. Samaritans were enemies of the Jews. So when Jesus is telling this story, he's kind of rubbing it in priest walks by, the Levite walks by, the Jews walk by, the people of your group, the ones who follow your law, they saw the person in distress, and they exhibited no mercy. But your enemy came by, the one who you would not consider your neighbor, he came by, and he had mercy. A Samaritan was a half-breed Jew with a warped religious tradition. He was the one who stopped to help the Jew who hated him. So the four dimensions of mercy. Eyes that see the need. A heart of compassion. Making the effort to help. Sympathy will feel bad. But it's compassion that moves us into action. Even if that person is your enemy. That's mercy. That's what mercy is. So, how do I get mercy? Sorry, so, maybe I've convinced you at this point all right, this mercy thing sounds like a good idea, and I've just done a, like a you know, put my dipstick in. I'm reading my mercy level. Oh, I'm a caught low. How do I get some mercy? <laughs> well, the key to becoming a merciful person is to become a broken person. You get the power to show mercy from the real feeling that in your heart you owe everything you are to the sheer divine mercy that's been expressed to you. That's how you get mercy. Sometimes we need to see it. We've seen it at Burning Man. We've seen it on our prophetic evangelism outreaches. We see it at the food pantry. some have seen it on the mission field you can look around this room and see it and when we see it when we see the need for mercy it breaks us we're moved with compassion and we just have to do something we have to give an encouraging word to the person who really looks discouraged that's mercy you have to give away food at the food pantry. We have to hand out water bottles in the desert at Burning Man. You just have to. Because you know that there are people out there who need that mercy. You have to do something. You have to actively be compassionate. Sometimes it's, it's a big thing. Like the parable of the Good Samaritan. Where you bandage someone's wounds and you you take them to a hospital or a place where their their needs can be met, physical needs can actually be met. Sometimes it's a big thing. But often it's the little stuff. It's to give our time when we don't have time. That can be merciful. It's to listen longer than we want to. But that they need us to. That can be mercy. It could be just to hug those who need a hug. You know? Never underestimate the power of a hug. Sometimes mercy means crying with those who are crying. Or to sit quietly by somebody's side when you have no words. Sometimes there are no words. Often I've found Christian cliches, are not merciful. <laughs> They're really more to comfort me than to comfort them. I've used Christian cliches as pride to communicate, I have the answer. And if you were just as spiritual as I am, you would know it too. But it never makes the other person feel better, right? Hardly ever. So sometimes the best thing, the most merciful thing we can do, is just sit with a friend. Sometimes words aren't necessary. Just our presence is necessary. I think that these are some of the characteristics that will be played out in this mercy season. The mercy season will be noted by the evidence and the expressions of biblical mercy. What are the enemies of mercy? Well, I think the, in the, the parable of the, of the Good Samaritan, the enemies of mercy... Are best seen in the priest and the Levi, right? They have a hard heart. In other words, their heart hasn't been broken yet. At least not broken enough to the point to actually help a, fe- a fellow Jew who has been mugged and robbed and left half dead. This person's in bad shape. They're left half dead, right? So just walk by that person. There's some kind of hardness in our heart. We haven't experienced that breaking yet that I described earlier. We take no action. We might have sympathy, but there's a lack of compassion. I think the other is a religious spirit because that's probably the other factor that was at play there with the Pharisee and the Levite. If they touched them, they would become unclean somehow according to their religious law. And so, following their religious rules and regulations became a higher value to them than showing compassion and mercy to a brother who is in need. That's not cool. When we get to that place, we've really screwed this whole thing up, and that's really what Jesus is trying to communicate. With, right? A religious spirit is you take no action for religious reasons. That's probably a good definition of a religious spirit. Their demons might get on me. You know? A real Christian would never go to Burning Man. You know? Others I've heard, you know, we do our outreaches. Christians don't interpret dreams. You know, that's what psychics do. And yet so many people's lives get touched. Nadine, I wasn't feeling good Tuesday. Nadine went to the spoon and met up with Ginny and, and Peter and Maurice. She she left and she told me, she says, What happens? I said, honey, I'm not feeling good. I'm not going to be able to go. She says, but what happens if they have a dream? I said, you can handle it. She's like, oh, okay, I don't know. And so she left, and she was kind of nervous. She came back, and she was jazzed. She was like really pumped up and said, It was a great night tonight, she says. And there were no dreams. I prayed <laughs> pray on the way there that we'd only have life readings, that we only did life readings. And she talked about the great encounters that they had. Right? Mercy will step outside of our comfort zone because it might, have encouragement. It might be life-giving to another person. A religious spirit will one way or another excuse or explain away a lack of compassion. I think compassion (laughs) is going to be a huge element, a profoundly significant piece of the puzzle in the mercy season that God's going to express compassion on us and that we get to express compassion to one another I'm 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 ready for that I'm I'm hungry for that I'm excited for that So like I said in the beginning kingdom citizens are characterized by being poor in spirit they're humble by being mournful they're broken By being meek, they're submissive. By hunger and thirsting for righteousness, they passionately desire eternity. By being merciful, they're actively compassionate. By being pure in heart, their mind, their will, and emotions are clean, undivided, uncorrupted, without mixture. By being peacemakers, they're willing to do whatever needs to be done to bring about safety and security and harmony. And to us belong, the kingdom of heaven, the comfort of God, will inherit the earth. To us belong satisfaction and compassion, the ability to, to behold God himself, to be his sons and daughters. We've, um, we've been doing this book club on the book, He Loves Me, uh, by Wayne... Jacobson. I know that um, a handful of you guys have been coming to the book club and it's great. We're having some really good discussions. But I really, with all my heart, want to encourage every one of you, get a copy of this book. You can pick it up on Amazon for under 10 bucks. And if you want it, this is the second edition. If you want to download it, go to our website. There's a link. You can download a PDF file of the first edition of the book for free. So get a copy of this book. There is, truly, there's life on this. Um, so he has insight into Scripture that I've read my whole life, and I've never seen it quite the way he communicates. It, you know? And the beginning of chapter six, usually at the he- at the top of each chapter, he has some little little phrase or some kind of quote. And the quote on the, on the top of chapter six, the title of chapter six is "The Tyranny of the Favor Line." On the top of chapter six, this is the quote he had. He had a conversation with a young girl, I think maybe it was his daughter, but a young girl who'd just come home from youth group at the church. And um, this is the observation of a 15-year-old summing up um, an evening with her youth group. They said, well, how'd it go? And this is what she said, God is good, you are bad, try harder. (laughs) God is good, (laughs) you are bad, try harder. Man, i heard that for decades. I've heard that for decades. And I don't think it's the truth. (laughs) I think God's good. But I believe he sees me the same way I see my daughter. Now, I I have a harder time grasping his love for me when I think about just him and me. But when I look at my daughter, and I have such amazing love for her, She is absolutely the apple of Daddy's eye. I delight over her. And if I can think about my relationship with the Father that way, I would never say to Lisa, I'm good, you're bad, try harder. I would never say that to her. I would never communicate that to her. That would crush her. I tell her, you're amazing, you're beautiful. She laughs. Every once in a while... I think about her, and I smile, so I send her a text message. Right? And I'll just say something funny. So she tells me the other day, I didn't realize this, she says every time she gets one of them, she shows it to her friends. <laughs> but it encourages her. And I like to encourage her. Because I love her. And I'm not lying to her. It's how I see her. It's truly how I see her. I don't think she sees herself the way I see her. But I don't think I see myself the way God sees me either. He really loves us. I think the mercy season is going to change that. I think the message is no longer going to be, God is good, I'm bad, try harder. I think that message is over. I think that message has got to go. You know, I'm tired of hearing that. I don't hear any mercy in, God is good, you're bad, try harder. Is there any mercy in there? I don't sound like the mercy season to me. Guys, get a copy of this book. (laughs) It's, it's, it will encourage you. I love the subtitle, Learning to Live in the Father's Affection. Learning to Live in the Father's Affection. I need to hear that my Father loves me. I need to know that he loves me unconditionally and that his favor rests on me. I will run to the battle. <laughs> I, will, I will sacrifice my life on the battlefield willingly, cheerfully, because I know of his extravagant love for me. But if all all my perception is is that he's beating me and telling me I'm not good enough, I don't want to run to the battlefield. I don't want to give up. I want to go hide in the corner and lick my wounds because I'm just not good enough. I don't think it's about good and bad. I think it's about being loved or not knowing that you're loved. I think that's the change. And in my heart, now I I know <laughs> in my more prophetic moments, my less pastoral moments, I've preached that. One way, shape, form, or another, I've preached sermons that in essence communicated to people, God's good, you're bad, try harder. And I don't want to do that anymore. I don't feel like there's life on it. And again, reading this book is has helped me to open my eyes to that reality uh, even greater even greater Jesus pays it's a huge price he shed every drop of his blood on the cross paying a debt we could never pay Right? we can't pay that debt we would never ever be good enough I don't have to climb up to the cross he went on the cross he did the work for me now I just got to have a relationship with him. That sounds like mercy. So I want to go that way. I, I, wanna f- I want to take the next decade or two and explore hey, what might this look like? You know, I've done it the other way for.